it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Thursday, January 26th, 2023. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host political editor at townhall.com and a Fox News contributor, inviting you to listen live as we air every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. If you can't catch us live, that's fine. We also have a podcast. It's free. It's on demand. All that information and more at GuyBensonShow.com. That's our online home. You can follow us on social media at GuyBensonShow, Twitter and Instagram. My personal handle on those two platforms is at GuyP.com. Benson. Lineup today is as follows. Governor Chris Sununu, Republican of New Hampshire, he'll be here later on this hour. In the next hour, Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, our Fox News colleague now, he just got back from Ukraine. He was there for two weeks. He gathered a lot of information, and we will ask him about what he saw, what he heard, what he experienced coming up a little bit later on. Also, Miranda Devine will be here, author of the book Laptop from Hell, the Hunter Biden angle on the classified document scandal that is currently embroiling the Biden administration. We'll ask her about that and a lot more as well. So much to get to on this Friday Eve. Again, thank you for tuning in. So <laughs> you kind of just have to chuckle and shake your head. We've been updating you now for what a week or two at this point on Florida's decision to veto, at least temporarily, the AP African-American Studies proposed new course that had been out of the public eye. People did not know what was in the proposed syllabus. There were 60 high schools being used for a pilot program around the country. We did not know which schools those were, uh, where they were located. As we have learned more, Florida has decided that they were going to say no. As written, this course was not going to be eligible to be taught in the state of Florida. And the reason that I think they ultimately made that decision was the fourth unit of the curriculum, which was leaked to me. I got the full proposed laid out materials. And as I've said multiple times, units one, two, and three seemed great, really interesting, very worthwhile. I think this is a worthy AP class, if designed properly. And I think having a transparent and open public debate about that is important. And what Florida has done and Governor DeSantis has done is forced that debate into the public eye. And in that problematic fourth unit that's been proposed in the course materials, you've got a bunch of left-wing stuff. There's an open invitation for teachers to jam in a bunch of leftist indoctrination on pretty radical fringe ideas like prison abolition, reparations, racial reparations, intersectionality, calling people who want a race-blind society racists themselves, black queer theory, 
black queer studies being a part of it. And a number of conservatives, even guys like Jonah Goldberg, he said, look, we have a problem in this country where people don't know the basics. Students are struggling with just simple math and writing and civics. Does black queer studies really fit into something that ought to be prioritized, especially even within the realm of black history in this country? DeSantis looked at that stuff and said, you know, yeah, intersectionality, queer studies, abolition movement, reparations, all this stuff is political. It's an agenda. So that's not going to be okay. So come back to us with something different or else you can't teach this in Florida. Now, that triggered a whole bunch of freakouts and allegations of racism and so on and so forth. We brought you the update on the show yesterday that the college board responsible for this curriculum seems to have backed down, saying that they are going to alter the curriculum in order to comply with Florida law. And they would have that new option available by early February. So at least on the surface, looking like a win for the DeSantis administration, a win for the state of Florida, a win, I would say, for the students of Florida, because I think this should be in the offing, just not the way that it's currently constituted in that one part of the class. That's where I come down on it. Well, because everything is a big tribal fight these days, a number of Democratic governors who want to be president, Pritzker of Illinois, one of the biggest COVID hypocrites in the country, and then Mr. Number One on that front, Gavin Newsom, of course, in California, they have come out pushing back, criticizing DeSantis, Seems like that's what Newsom does just for sport every day. He really wants to be president. He really wants to pick a fight with DeSantis. DeSantis is, I think, happy to rumble. Florida versus California, it's just like not even a close call. But, you know, they're fighting back and they're criticizing DeSantis and isn't this awful? They've got their buddies and allies like Randy Weingarten, the slow-witted and I think deeply sort of evil in some ways. I would, let's, evil's a strong word. I'll call her a pernicious influence in our society. I'll be nicer. But she came out and called this the erasure of all of black history, which is a complete and total lie. We dealt with that yesterday. And I guess Pritzker, wanting to really distinguish himself in this realm, he's now come out and said, that in order for this class to be taught in Illinois, it must include things like black queer theory. So that's where we are. That's where we are as a society. And sort of like a, you know, pick your fighter moment, a video games analogy or reference. On one hand, you have the governor of Florida saying black history must be taught in our schools. It's a requirement. Black history is American history. If we're going to have a supplemental advanced placement course in high schools in Florida, we don't want a bunch of left-wing political stuff in there, where the writings in Unit 4 are overwhelmingly, heavily lefty slanted, including some very radical ideas, radical writers, Marxist-type stuff, critical theory all over the place. And that's an agenda, that's not education, that can't be part 
of an AP course. And on the other hand, in this choose-your-fighter option, you've got J.B. Pritzker, who's saying, well, in order, think about this, in order for like a 16-year-old to have a truly elite experience educationally, learning about black history in America, it must, that 16-year-old must learn about black queer studies. So I don't know where this leaves the college board, what they're going to do. Are they going to offer like the non-politicized version of AP African American Studies available in certain states and then the highly lefty, polarized, politicized version of the curriculum, which is like 75, 80 percent the same, but with a big left wing twist at the end of the semester for other states like California and Illinois? Maybe. I don't know how this works exactly. You might have different AP classes being taught in different states based on the leadership of those states. Like, everything is becoming politicized in this country. And at some point, it kind of does feel like there are leaders in places like California and Illinois and elsewhere. Hey, New York, like the governor of New York explicitly said, if you don't agree with us and you're not a liberal especially on social issues you're just get out of here get the hell out of new york we don't want you go to florida then a bunch of people said okay sayonara and now she's wringing her hands about not having enough of a tax base and the people draining out of her state she's like no no no, we got to get them to come back but some of these democratic leaders are like you know we just don't want you here if you feel like you have a high school student and they want to learn about african-american history if you don't want them being inculcated and bombarded with some of this left-wing stuff, then, you know, either tough luck, don't have them take the class, or move. It kind of feels like we might be heading in a direction where even more Americans vote with their feet and we become even more polarized, where red states get redder, blue states get bluer, and it's just sort of insane, where you can just, like, live two completely different types of realities and existences. Now, unfortunately, in this case, you've got, like, kids in education right in the crossfire. But that's honestly how the hard left has always, at least in recent decades, viewed some of these fights. And I think it's really escalated in the last few years. They brazenly, explicitly want to indoctrinate kids in schools. They feel like it's their duty, and it's like white supremacy not to do it. And if you disagree, then you're probably a white supremacist or white supremacy adjacent or whatever terms they're going to use. But they realize that still isn't going to fly with most people. Look at what happened in Virginia in 2021. So they have to sort of hide the football, camouflage their efforts and lie. Claim that they're not doing exactly what they are doing. And then whip up a bunch of phony outrage over things that aren't true. Right, so I think back to the so-called don't say gay law in Florida where the teachers union, which is just, you know, an auxiliary of the Democratic Party, and the national media and Florida Democrats and left-wing activists all just whipped themselves up into a frenzy where I guess a lot of, like, like maybe even well-meaning people were led to believe that Under Ron DeSantis, you're not allowed to say the word gay in Florida or in Florida schools. It's just like 
completely divorced from the actual reality. The core of that law was making sure that there was not going to be sexual or gender identity instruction for K through 3 students. And then when that became apparent to people, they're like, oh, yeah, I'm for that. And all these people were way out on a limb, like hammering this law like it's, you know, some giant homophobic thing. And then people find out, wait, it's we're not going to do like, you know, trans stuff for first graders. That makes sense to me. And there they are out on their limb. It looks like they might be doing it again over a so-called book banning edict in Florida. I see Don Lemon over on CNN. I think they had their worst ratings week yet on that morning show. So I guess uh, tens of people saw it when he erupted over the supposed book banning from DeSantis in Florida, saying it feels like the 1950s all over again. Randy Weingarten inevitably coming in with her slow-witted garbage and deceit quoting some of these teachers who are now caught up in the alleged book banning who say that they're just like weeping and they're heartbroken. They aren't allowed to have books for their children anymore. Their school libraries and their classrooms are now banned. This is what they're putting out there. And they're turning it into, as they always do, a national story. And they're not telling you the truth, which is often a feature of these panics as well. The way that it's being presented is Florida teachers are now being forced to remove all unvetted books from their classroom libraries or they can face felony prosecution. The policy, this is uh, what a reporter writes, is based on the premise that teachers and librarians are using books to groom students. So Manny Diaz Jr., the commissioner of education in Florida, he says this is more fake news from media activists too lazy to read Florida law. What the law actually says is a teacher or any adult faces a felony if they knowingly distribute egregious materials such as images depicting sexual conduct, sexual battery, bestiality, or sadomasochistic abuse. That's the felony. He asks who could be against that. And then he screen screen grabs and posts the relevant statute on his Twitter feed. And it's like section three, subpoints A, B, and then subpoint four and five and six. And he highlights that. And you actually read through it. And it's obvious that it is about explicitly sexual material. The intent of this law, as written, if you look at it, is to make a felony adults knowingly giving sexually explicit material to children in schools including some really far out there sexual deviant stuff. That's what the law says. And this has now been extrapolated into they're banning books. Teachers can't give books to students. We're weeping. Our hearts ache. Reading is going to die. This is, this is what they do. Now, it seems like it's possible that some school districts or principals or whatever are overcorrecting or they're paranoid about what the law might say. So they're saying, all right, no books until they're all vetted. I think that's probably an overreaction. Maybe it's worthwhile for the Department of Education down there and the governor to say, we're not banning books. This is not what that's about. It's explicitly about sexual stuff for kids. 
like providing like porn to kids. Come on, that's the crime. But now it's like they've just they've just they've banned books. They've banned books in Florida. You can't say the word gay and you can't read. This is what they want you to believe. And then they ignore what's actually in the law. And they step on the rake over and over again. And now it's like, oh, people are going to find out. Oh, I don't want a teacher giving pornography to my child. I agree with that. That should be a crime. But they're all there caterwauling, yelling, and screaming. And the pattern goes on and on. It's like whack-a-mole with these lies. These freakouts. My goodness. And I think there's a reason why they do this so often involving the state of Florida and the person who's leading the state of Florida. It's almost as if they're desperate to bring him down or to make him unpalatable in the eyes of the country. I, I wonder why that might be. Anyone have any theories? You can ponder that. Meanwhile, we'll take our first break of the show just getting started on this Thursday. It is The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Saw this story described by someone as impressively stupid. Politico story, rebranding Rift guts Blue Dog Dem ranks. Nearly half the members of the influential centrist coalition are letting themselves out after a failed push for a name change designed for a new era. So the Blue Dog Democrats, supposedly the moderate Democrats, there's really not a lot of them left, and most of them are just play-acting anyway. Fifteen members of the Blue Dog Coalition, they apparently had a big, nasty Lock, knock down, drag out fight over changing the name of the Blue Dog. So they feel like it's, it's out of touch. It's like an old description of like a southern old good old boys club, socially moderate. They wanted some of them to be called the Common Sense Coalition. So they had a big angry debate, then a private vote. The vote failed to change the name. So the people who wanted to change the name just left. The story says blue dogs have long stood for fiscal responsibility. Really? All these people, I believe, every last one of them, voted for Build Back Better, $5 trillion. So now the blue dogs are, what, seven people left? And the other ones want to be called Common Sense Coalition? They're all lockstep Democrats. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show. Welcome back. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. Podcast is free every day. Joining us once again is Chris Sununu, the 82nd governor of the great state of New Hampshire. He's a Republican and governor. It's good to have you back here. Hey, what's up, Guy? How you doing? I'm doing well. So I saw this story 
Big uh, contretemps in New Hampshire over the primary calendar, and especially on the Democratic side, they had a big mess in 2020, I guess, yeah, 2019 into 2020 in Iowa. Now it looks like President Biden wants to bypass Iowa and New Hampshire and start their nominating process in South Carolina. Democrats in your state are very upset about this. They're waging this big public battle against this possibility. Meanwhile, the DNC, angry at, North, at New Hampshire Democrats, saying that their opposition and their criticisms have been shocking, disturbing, and irresponsible. I just wonder what you make of all of this from the other side of the aisle, and are there any changes coming on the Republican side? Uh, no, no changes on our side. I mean, the Democrat Party is a mess right now. And, you know, they talked about doing this back in August, and then they realized it might not be a great idea. So they delayed it till November. They delayed the decision into December, January. Now they're going to delay it into June because they know what a negative domino effect it's creating. And just the idea that you're going to have effectively a candidate, right, Joe Biden, who says he's going to run again, uh, pick which state should come first. And, of course, he's picking his buddies. It's just political personal political payback to uh, those that anointed him, because that's kind of how South Carolina does it, anointed him uh, onto the ballot in, uh, and, and launched him in, back in 2020. So it's just it's, – it's for all the wrong reasons. I mean I think South Carolina has like 16 percent voter turnout. Like people don't even really participate, uh, whereas in New Hampshire we are constantly setting records for voter turnout. So it just – it really makes no sense. We have the first the nation primary guy because we've earned it, right? We, we, you don't need money. You don't need name ID. You don't need any of that to have a real shot, uh, and everything really comes down to the wire. And you got to go door to door and person to person as it should be and, and earn it. And uh, so, you know, I think they realize what a mess that they're in. Um, we're not changing anything on our side. Um, we're pushing back really hard. And, and by the way, we're coming first whether they like it or not. Our law says so. So we're going to hold ours first. They, oh, we, they might take our delegates or something silly like that. Who cares? Uh, the fact of the matter is all the media, all the attention, all the candidates are going to be here. And believe you me, somebody will be challenging Joe Biden, and they will be running in New Hampshire. And when they win, they're going to come out with a whole head of steam, a lot of momentum, uh, and Joe Biden will be sitting on his heels. So I think they just realize what a mess this is. That's why they keep delaying the final decision. And hopefully they come to the right conclusion, get their heads about them, and, and make sure New Hampshire's first on their schedule as well. Well, I think part of what they argue is in Iowa and in New Hampshire, they say it's just those places are too white. And they say that's not representative of America. It's certainly not representative of their base. So the, these places are too white. Of course, Iowa was where Barack Obama took off, the first black president, and sort of like put that off to the side. But that's one of the big arguments, like a racial argument. Yeah, yeah. So they, they say there's not much diversity in the vote, yet you're going to go to South Carolina where virtually nobody votes. Like virtually, like I think 16 percent voter turnout last time. So what's the point of having all this diversity they claim to have if they don't let, let people participate in the process and they just have the upper echelon of liberal left wing elites dictate who's who's going to to get the nomination? Here's one for you, guy. In 2020, do you know what the do you know what happened to the Republican nomination in South Carolina? They didn't even hold. They didn't even even hold a um, an election. They just kind of nominated Donald Trump as the incumbent. That's what they do. So there's actually a good chance they're going to take. They want to take the first nation primary from New Hampshire and bring it to a state that won't even hold a primary. They'll just anoint Joe Biden as the incumbent, the winner, and move on from there. So again, where, where's, what does diversity matter when you're not even holding a race? 
one of the people that you might have in mind when you said that there are folks who might want to challenge Joe Biden, there are plenty of people who desperately want to be president on both sides of the aisle, uh, including some governors, both sides of the aisle. I was just talking earlier this hour about two of them on the Democratic side, Pritzker in Illinois and, of course, Newsom out in California. Newsom's been giving some interviews. There have been some really horrible mass shootings out in that state recently, including two happening in the span of just days around the Lunar New Year. Um, Mass shootings perpetrated strangely, as it turns out, by elderly Asian Americans. And Newsom's just sort of railing against the Second Amendment and talking about all the things that need to be done to curb gun violence. Of course, California has done almost all of those things, and yet we saw horribly what happened there. And he referred in one of these interviews to the Second Amendment as becoming something of a suicide pact. Let's listen to Cut 22. I mean, the Second Amendment's becoming a suicide pact. But there's many people in this country that support the Second I, Amendment I, I support, and, our, and our lawful gun owners. Yeah, I have great respect. I have no ideological opposition to someone reasonably and responsibly owning firearms and getting background checks and being trained. So he's saying, oh, yeah, I respect the Second Amendment, except it's a suicide pact. I just wonder what you think of that soundbite. Oh, I tell you, man, Gavin Newsom is an insensitive fool. Um, just literally days, a day or so after the second of these shootings. First off, in those moments as a governor, I can tell you the focus isn't about scoring a political point. It's on the families. It's on the victims. It's on the response. I mean, that's what it has to be about. And this guy is standing up trying to make some sort of bizarre political argument. Um, this is the state with the most restrictive gun laws in the country. And he's just going to stand up and rail on the Second Amendment instead of, and this is where Democrats really are missing the ball, going after issues. If you want to talk about this, which, again, moments after a shooting is not the time or place, but when you do talk about it, it's not just about guns. That's not it. It has to be about the core issue. It's mental health, right? It's disconnection. It's all the things that drive folks to do this. So when you have leadership that is refusing to look at the core issues in their communities, that's not leadership at all, right? And so that's why when I heard that statement, I, I literally almost fell off my chair because as as a as a average citizen, it's insensitive and, and dumb. As a governor, it's completely irresponsible. So, I mean, look, if, they, if folks want to get serious about tackling issues uh, that really spur and drive, um, unfortunately, a lot of that um, isolation, that loneliness, that mental, those mental health issues, the, the lack of community services that can help create support structures for those individuals so they don't end up in mass situations where they're considering mass shootings and violence and all of this, then let's really start talking about that. But I just think what he said was just, you know, like I said, insensitive and foolish. You mentioned the word a moment ago, irresponsible. Let's turn to a different topic, which has been all the rage here in Washington, D.C. for weeks now, and it's the classified documents mess. And I've been talking about, I mean, look, you go back to Hillary Clinton, I think the worst offender of them all on this front, and her private email server destroying evidence, lying about it. No prosecution there, famously no charges. Then you've got Donald Trump with the Mar-a-Lago trove and his sort of like, you know, mystical thinking explanation that he magically had declassified this stuff in his head or something before he left office uh, and having a big battle with the National Archives and the DOJ. Then you've got the raid. And there's a lot of sensitive stuff there sitting at Mar-a-Lago. Biden, the current president, super critical of that. How can that happen? It's so terrible. Things could have put at risk. And now, you know, we're watching what's happening there. Five or six of these discoveries already. There might be more. I saw the National Archives is now asking all current and former presidents and vice presidents to search 
you know, their archives, their homes for this kind of stuff. And then Mike Pence getting in on the action here with uh, he said, OK, let's let's take a look in Indiana. They found a, a dozen documents there. Um, it's really been quite a spectacle here. Um, and it's interesting watching people getting up and down from high horses on this whole issue, depending on you know which side of the aisle you're on. Look, I think the most amazing thing is that this is another uh, significant drop in the bucket, if you will, of America just having no faith and confidence of transparency and accountability in Washington, right? So the fact that we found files in Biden's and then we found more and then we found them uh, with, with uh, obviously prior with former President Trump and Mike Pence. So I think what America is saying is, well, wait a minute, these files are likely everywhere. Because the, the, the story I heard is that some of even Biden's files are when he was in the Senate. So I, I personally think there shouldn't just be a who has the files uh, within the presidency. Um, who else might have them? Are there other, whether they're elected officials, head of Senate or, or congressional committees, uh, individuals that are now in the private sector that were once under Homeland Security or, or other security agencies that may, might have files in their homes, whether they know it or not, intentional or not? It is clear that there is no construct for a uh, manifest and tracking system for these, this very sensitive, highly classified information. So how you fix that going backwards, I don't know, other than I think everyone needs to go look in their basement and, and of course, you know, like Joe Biden, you know, behind the Corvettes. Like a garage, um, right. Which, you know, is just completely silly. But going forward, there, there can be – again, I'm the governor of New Hampshire. If we had a situation like that, it's, it's the accountability. The buck stops here, right? We're going to create a system of, of uh, controls so that that very sensitive and what potentially dangerous information doesn't get out. So I don't think it's as difficult as people make it out to be. I think you have to really get your arms around how big this problem is, and my guess it's exponentially bigger than we even know right now. And, but start today creating a system. You know, I've been handed top-secret documents before as a governor. I'm handed them. You know what I do? I read them, and I literally give them directly back to the individual that gave them to me. Usually they're only read in secure locations. So I have a very strict rules here uh, in my office about how we handle that, how my staff handles that, and I don't even want them. I, I'll read them. I'll look at them. We'll, we'll take our notes and understand and have conversations, and then we literally hand them back and get them out because we try to treat it with the sensitivity it deserves. So I don't know. Washington's got to kind of get their act together in a variety of different ways, and this is just the, uh, the latest shooter drop. Full circle back to the very first topic we discussed, the primaries. You said New Hampshire will be the first primary in the nation. Uh, when there's a presidential primary in New Hampshire in 2024, will you be on the ballot? Uh, not thinking about that right now. I'm really not. So folks are having conversations and everything. But look, I'm governor first. Uh, everyone here knows me as the governor first. And this has to be my, my first party. I literally just had a, like an inaugural ball like a week ago. So I'm not even thinking about about that. We're, we're doing a lot of, I think, really good stuff nationally, trying to expand the party, bring in that next generation of voter, talk to the independents. I think that's where I can be, a, 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 I think, a very useful voice, if you will. And if it leads to something bigger, so be it. But right now we're just we're focused on New Hampshire and making All sure. All right, see, so you're not thinking you're, you're not there yet. Uh, if that should change, if and when that should change, we'd love to have you back and talk more about it. Chris Sununu, governor of New Hampshire, our guest on the show. Governor, thank you. All right. Thank you, buddy. Be good. Looking forward to our next chat. Always an engaging conversation with New Hampshire's governor. Take a break. We'll come right back. Something so embarrassing happened in the Senate. Wait till you hear this. We continue here on The Guy Benson Show. The soundbite I'm about to play for you is cringeworthy. It features U.S. Senator John Kennedy of Louisiana, who's quite a character. Also, a very smart lawyer. 
He sits on the Senate Judiciary Committee. And he asked a couple of very basic, straightforward questions of one of President Biden's judicial nominees to serve as a federal judge, U.S. District Court. Her name is Charnel Belkingren. And I guess Joe Biden and the Democrats have decided that this young woman is worthy of a federal judgeship. And Senator Kennedy was like, "Okay, let's talk just about a few basics in the Constitution. Let's listen together. Cut 24. Judge on the far end. Uh, tell, Tell me what Article five of the Constitution does. Article five is not coming to mind at the moment. Okay. how about Article two? Neither is Article 2. Oh, I mean, gut punch. It's so bad. Just oof. Tell me what Article 5 of the Constitution does. Now, I would probably have to look that up. I'm not a lawyer, never went to law school, not trying to become a federal judge. Article 2? Like, I know that. And Article 1 is the people's branch, the legislative branch. Article 2 is the presidency and the executive branch. But those things were not coming to mind for this judge. Just basic Constitution 101 questions for someone that Joe Biden and the Democrats want to become an appellate judge with a lifetime tenure. I mean, I remember that when Republicans were confirming a bunch of judges under Trump, the Democrats and the media were all angry because some of them were young and not terribly experienced. They're like, who are these people? They're just packing the courts, which is not the correct use of the term. Well, the Democrats are now doing their own, based on their own definition, court packing, quote unquote, with people what, like this? I saw a few people noting that Senator Kennedy, I guess, asked similar questions of some of the Trump nominees, one of whom failed the way that this woman just did, and it was so embarrassing that that nomination was withdrawn. If you are a judge, or I guess she is a judge, but seeking a federal judgeship at a high level, and you just draw a total blank on what Article 2 of the Constitution deals with, that seems pretty disqualifying. Will it be? Or is it like, oh, well, here's a young woman who checks some boxes and she could be in the federal judiciary for a long time and she'll give us the outcomes that we want. And so let's just confirm her anyway. Is this the quality of people that Biden is putting up? By the way, the American Bar Association, very liberal organization, they rate judicial nominees. Different levels of qualification. And back in the Trump days, liberals would point out, oh, the ABA says this person isn't well qualified or is not qualified. How on earth could they be put on a court? Well, this nominee is rated as qualified by the American Bar Association. I wonder how they drew that conclusion. Is there like a grading curve or grade inflation? Everything else is inflated under Biden. Is there grade inflation for his judicial nominees? How do you earn a qualified rating from this organization if you can't easily off the top of your head briefly mention anything about Article 2 of the Constitution. 
you sort of wonder what the process looks like. I wonder what the underbelly of the rankings and the rating system actually looks like at the liberal ABA. Why should that be taken seriously? I mean, that I watched the clip, even though I'm rooting against her, because I just imagine she's a progressive who would distort the law, not that she's really interested in the law, obviously. Not rooting for her confirmation, but it's still painful to watch. Like, what a humiliating moment. Like, you should know some of this stuff in that position off the top of your head, or at the very least, you should have done some of the prep to know that sometimes Senator Kennedy asks these types of questions, and it has tripped up other people, including on the other side of the ideological spectrum, to the point that they've had to withdraw their name. Like, that would be some due diligence as well. Maybe they just don't care. Just like, hey, confirm me, rubber stamp, the Democrats are going to do what they're going to do, and I can just sit there and be basically a politician in robes. Who cares what the Constitution says? Who cares what article? What's Article 2? That's the cynical take on it. And it wasn't a really tricky gotcha, especially, I mean, neither part of that question, especially the latter part. If you, like, took basic civics, which maybe this woman didn't, maybe a lot of Americans don't these days, you should know especially if you want to be someone interpreting the Constitution, affecting many people. Just just my thought. Another hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up next. Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, Fox News contributor, just got back from Ukraine. He went all over the country. He learned a lot about the war over there. We will ask him for some of his top-line takeaways when we come back. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show underway. Thank you very much for tuning in every weekday. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free on demand every day. Lots of goodies, lots of content at GuyBensonShow.com. Also, follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at Guy Benson Show. You can also follow me personally on those platforms, at Guy P. Benson. Let's get to our next guest, Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, retired, a Fox News contributor, former National Security Advisor to Vice President Pence, and former Chief of Staff of the National Security Council during the Trump administration. And, General, it's always good to have you here. Welcome back to the show. Guy, thanks for having me. Good to be with you. So my understanding is you have just returned from Ukraine. Talk to us about that visit. When were you there? How long were you there? Who organized it? What was the purpose of the trip? Yeah, Guy, I was over there uh, just almost almost two weeks, uh, just a day short of two weeks. And I went over there uh, because there was an organization called the Weatherman Foundation, uh, uh, which is really a nonprofit that is focused on democracy. And it gave me a chance to get over there because they're all over the country. And it gave me a chance to get into Ukraine and travel uh, primarily in the east uh, to find out actually what was going on as in a non, you know, non-governmental uh, sanctioned visit. So I got into country with them, and I was able to travel with them. And we were we went from Odessa to Kherson to up to Kharkiv, and from Kharkiv uh, over to Izium into the Donbass region. Then we finally ended up back in in Kiev. So we traveled all over a big, big country. 
a lot of traveling, met a lot of people, met military people, met civilian, but we met both the mayors of Kiev and Kharkiv, the two largest cities. Um, got a chance to see military commanders, talk to them. Also had a chance to talk to some U.S. people who were actually fighting with the Ukrainians that are over there right now. Um, you like know, volunteers? one of them operations officer battalion, which was fighting uh, in the Sendar region, which was good. So I got a good feel for it, and I went over there just to get a, you know, a, a feel for what was happening over there and get a, a hands-on and touch it, you know, touch it, feel it, you know, and see what was going on. So I could come back and say, okay, I've kind of seen it. I know what's going on. I got a good feel for it, and now I can talk pretty intelligently about it, at least I okay, hope so. Okay, so let's delve into some of that in a moment. But you mentioned that you talked with some U.S. personnel on the ground fighting for Ukraine. Were those volunteers? Yeah, what they are, you know, most of them are, they've gone over there. It's called the Foreign Legion. And these are Americans, and not just Americans, there's some Brits and other countries as well. Uh, and, and I was able to talk to the most senior one was an operations officer of a battalion over there. And these are people who have gone there to Ukraine. And this individual, both of his parents were Ukrainian, uh, been in the state, you know, grew up here in the States after his uh, mom and dad had come here to the U.S. and gone back. And you get a good feel for them what's going on out there. You know, they're considered, that's one of the issues I think that needs to be addressed is how do we treat them? Because right now they're treated like mercenaries. You know, something happens to them, which happened over there when we were there. There was a former Navy SEAL uh, was actually killed in action. Then you had to, you know, expatriate them, get them back to the States. So it was a chance to talk to them, see how the tactics are going, what they're doing, what they're doing on the front lines. So um, that was pretty interesting seeing uh, the Americans over there. What are your biggest takeaways militarily based on what you saw, especially in some of those really strategic cities and regions that you visited? What is your hands-on, eyes-on assessment? Yeah, this is a fight to the finish guy. Uh, if, if people think there's going to be negotiation, there's not. I mean, the, the Ukrainians are committed to this. I mean, they, they are um, – hate is not too strong a word to be using with the Russians. I mean, they've seen the Russians shell their cities, infrastructure – you know, when I went up to uh, Izium, you know, this was a, a town of 50,000 at the start of the war. They're down to 7,000. They targeted schools. They targeted ho- – I was in the hospital where they were at. They targeted the hospital, saw what was left of the hospital. Uh, you go to Kharkiv, which is a major city, talk to the mayor there. Uh, this is a city of one and a half million. It's it, totally dark at night. I mean, it's a total blackout. Uh, and, and so the Ukrainians are committed to this fight. They don't want American troops. They were very – I didn't have a – I didn't talk to a single – Ukrainian official that said, we want U.S. troops or NATO troops. All they want is the equipment to fight the Russians. And they are, when I say fight to the finish, if people out there think, well, we'll give them a little bit of equipment, they're going to negotiate. They're not negotiating. Um, I don't think the Russians are. I don't think the Ukrainians are as well. And they're losing losing a lot of troops as well, much like the Russians. But they've lost, well, pretty well sourced. They've lost almost 100,000 killed. The Ukrainians and the Russians have lost probably double that number. When you lose 100,000 soldiers, that's staggering number. When you think that we lost 50,000 in the Vietnam War over a period of years, and this is in less than a year, this is a major war going on in the middle of Europe. I mean, it's not one of those passing, you know, invasions that's going to go by in a week. This is a war, and you see it. You see the cities. You see the destruction out there where the Russians are targeting. And, and, and I'm t- every official I talked to has said. This is basically a fight to the finish, and and we have to understand that. I mean, that's what they're going to do. So my prediction is that there's going to be some major fighting in the springtime, and it's going to go into the in the summer and into the fall. And this will be the max opportunity. I believe the Ukrainians have a chance to finally finish the job they want to, because if it goes into attrition war, then it goes under under their back foot. That's what they're seeing at Bakhmut right now. 
where it's an attrition fight. And that's the reason why I pulled out of Sendar because the Russians were just throwing wave after wave of troops and losing them. Um, but there, it was a pure mass effort. And they said, that's, we're not going to trade one for one. And they really can when you look at the size of their nation, the size of their army. General, just so, quickly, uh, when you say that you heard from every single Ukrainian official that they're going to fight basically to the bitter end here, they intend to win, this is not going to end in some sort of settlement or negotiation, is that elite opinion within the military, or is that also reflected based on what you saw, what you heard in the general populace as well? I, it, was, it was everywhere across the line. Look, the people out there, I mean, they're fighting. Look, I, this is something that was stunning to me. I, I'm in Kharkiv, saving one and a half million people. And on the sides of the buildings are big posters of how to bake Molotov cocktails. Wow. So assuming the Russians come in there, I, I thought to myself, this is something to see. And the populace, even though like Kharkiv, and that's a good example because it's in the in the northeast of the country, they say, well, there's you know there's predominantly a Russian people. No, it's not. It's Russian speaking. But uh, and I was with the mayor there, and we we went all around the city, and they're committed to this fight. And and I think they just said we're not Russians, we're Ukrainians, and they've been independent for well over thirty years, and they're going to fight for what they've got. And it's something I'm not too sure Americans pick up on. But that's the way it's going to turn out. This isn't – when you lose that many troops, this isn't a, a sidebar effort. It's a major effort. And they're fighting the war, honestly, Guy, that I remember we would have fought – we intended to fight 30 years ago in NATO when we thought the, the Soviets and the Warsaw Pact were going to go across. They're fighting it right now. And I think, you know, when I'm sitting there, you know, I'm an America first guy, but America first doesn't mean isolationism. And I thought there was better ways to handle this at the start, but it, it wasn't. But to me, it's sort of like if you use a hockey term. Once you drop gloves and get into a fight – then you fight to the finish, and we need to understand that. That's how wars are fought, and we don't do it by half measures. And, and, and of course, the other thing that needs to be said over and over again, and I feel like some people in the West, some people in America, some folks on the right, either ignore or willfully sidestep the reality that this war was started unequivocally by the Russians. This was an aggressive war by them. They made the choice to invade. No one is warmongering here except for Putin and the Kremlin and the Russians. They did this. If they wanted to give up and surrender or just withdraw from another country's territory tomorrow, they could, and the war would be over. It's completely on them. To me, it's pretty black and white here, General. Now, there was a big development involving the West, just in the last day or two, finally, the Germans and now the Americans as well will be sending tanks to the Ukrainians. I know they've been begging for this type of equipment. Now they're going to get it. What's the significance of the Ukrainians getting these tanks from Western powers, number one? Number two, it sounds like it might take months to get them there. What's the effect of that lag? Give us that analysis. Yeah, and, and that's a great question, and it's almost like, okay, we're going to give them Abrams tanks, and the, and the Germans are going to give them Leopards. The Abrams tanks, when you look at it, to me, it's the, the, the world-class tank in the world. Leopard comes in with the British Challenger as like 1A, but the fact that we're giving them is important. Here's the concern I've got, though, guy. We're giving them a battalion's worth, a battalion, okay, and, the, and so are the Germans giving them a battalion. They don't need battalions. They need brigades to fight the Russians because the Russians are going to come at them in mass. And this is how you defeat them. And it's almost like we're beating our chest. Oh, we gave them 31 tanks. That's a battalion. That's not much. You know, we don't fight with battalions. We fight with brigades. In the United, in, well, and it took us forever Army. just to do this, right? This whole will we, won't we, what's the West going to do with holding the tanks for the better part of a year? Now we're finally doing something. I'm supportive of it. I know there are some elements of the right at home saying we need to stop giving them equipment and money. I don't believe that. 
But it's sort of like a question, why did it take this long to do just this? And if we were going to help them eventually with tanks, it just seems like a, a needless delay. And now there will be a further delay logistically. Yeah, and, and that's, I put all the blame on the president of the United States with President Biden. When he says, well, we're going to support him as long as it takes. And I said, that's, that's a bumper sticker. That's not a policy. And the policy has been to basically do it incrementally because hope they're going to go to negotiation. They're not going there. I think what, what Biden owes the American people is to stand up and say, what is America's role in this conflict? Because we are a proxy to the war, and at least tell them. And then we should fight the war as war should be fought. And I fault the Secretary of Defense. I fault the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Somebody should tell them and you know, giving them pretty good military guidance. When you get into a gunfight, you make sure you have more guns than the other side has. And they're not doing that. And that's the frustration. And, and Ukrainians are losing their soldiers. They're not losing the United States. Isn't. All they're said repeatedly is give us the kit to do it. Now, there's a way to do it. I don't know why it took so long and why it takes so long, because we've got in, in Europe, there's called the APS, the Army Preposition Stocks. It's APS-2. It's stationed in Germany. They've got three brigades of M1 sitting right there. Transfer them over. And then they say, well, it takes too long to train. No, it doesn't. It takes 44 weeks to train a, a civilian to be an M1 armor crewman, okay, 22 basic weeks and 22 advanced weeks. These guys have been doing this stuff for a long time, and they should have been doing this a lot earlier. But they can adjust really quickly to these systems. They're smart people. They know how to do it. But the equipment's there on the ground right now if we wanted to transfer over this. So this is another one of those things where, look, get the truth out there, tell them what's out there, and let them do it. And the second thing they need to do is they need to give them more MLRS, but not the HIMARS. We need them to the M270 tracked version, which is designed to fight with the Abrams and designed to fight with the Bradleys, and it doubles up your capacity. HIMARS has six tubes per it, and the M270 tracked version has 12. So give them that equipment. That's what's killing the Russians is the American HIMARS system. Give them the 270, which doubles up your capability. I mean, you know, if I was leading this fight and advising the fighter and advising the president, I would have been advising him totally differently because this is no way to, to fight a war especially when you're looking at the largest land war in Europe since World War II. General Kellogg, you're just back from Ukraine. People are just joining us. You saw it eyes on firsthand for two weeks all across that country. I do want you to respond to something that the former president put out on his social media uh, just hours ago. I know you were the chief of staff of the National Security Council under President Trump. He just put out on Truth Social essentially a warning that sending – Tanks to Ukraine will then lead to sending nukes to Ukraine, and he just said it's time to end the war, and it's easy to end the war. I'm paraphrasing, but that's his message. What do you make of that? Yeah, when I saw that, it's, it's, I think the implication is if we send tanks, then Putin's going to respond with nuclear weapons. I don't think he'll do that. I don't. He may do that if it gets near the end of the end state out there. And if I was advising President, advising President Trump today, I would say give them all the equipment they want, let them fight it out. And if Putin's stupid enough to go towards nukes, then, then we'll respond when that occurs at the time. I think if he intends, and this is my belief, that if Putin gets close to using nuclear weapons, I think that I think Putin's gone because they'll his military won't won't allow that to happen. It, it, that would be a. I think there's a lot of concern about that, and that might happen. And I think you have to consider that as well. But I would tell the president, let him fight it out. I mean, this is where. President's very good about that, and I, I'm not sure who's advising him right now, but I would, that's where I'd walk in the door and tell him, this is what you need to do. Let him fight it out. Let him slug it out in the middle of the ring and see you standing, and I'm pretty sure Ukrainians will. But I think the concern is if this thing goes on, 
Putin's going to lose the fight and he'll go to nuclear weapons. We're not going to give – nobody in their right mind will give nuclear weapons to, to Ukraine or anybody. We don't even give them to South Korea, and we don't even give them to Japan. So we're not going to go there. But I think the response is – and I think it's a fair, a fair concern. It's a valid concern because it's in the Russian doctrine. The Russian doctrine is they will use uh, – necessary as a demonstration low-yield nuclear weapons. Do They call them tactical nukes, and I think it's a terrible term, but it is to do something like a demonstration to show they're willing to use them. But I think if that happens, the Chinese walk away from them. I also think, I, I don't think he would survive very long because his military would know that this has just gone on too hard too long. And if we're going to say there's a simple and easy way to end the war, which is his implication in that post, as I said before, the simple, easy way to actually end the war is for the aggressors to give up and leave the sovereign territory of the country that they invaded by choice for no reason. It's not to try to put pressure on the invaded, victimized party, which, by the way, is winning, to make a bunch of concessions and negotiate some sort of peace that might not be permanent, first of all, and that would perhaps reward the Russians for what they did. That's just my view of it from far away. Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, retired, was just in Ukraine for a number of weeks. Invaluable insight, as he shares with us here on The Guy Benson Show. He's a Fox News contributor. And as I said, chief of staff of the National Security Council under President Trump as well. So an interesting credential there, all things considered. General, we always appreciate your time, and we look forward to talking again. Thanks, Guy. Thanks for having me. The Guy Benson Show returns right after this break. Guy Benson will be right back. Back on the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We were just talking with General Kellogg about Ukraine. On that front, an incredible moment this morning on Fox and Friends. Our colleague, Benjamin Hall, returning to live television for the very first time since that devastating attack that nearly killed him in Ukraine last year. He described, among other things, the actual impact in that moment. Just incredible, breathtaking stuff. Cut 18. The first explosion tore through a stand of pine birch trees a few feet away and we'd barely turned to look before the second bomb whistled overhead and landed right next to us and everything went dark. If I had the slightest iota of consciousness, it was a distant sense of shockwaves and the feeling that every part of my body, bones, organs, sinew, my soul, had been knocked out of me. I did not exist, except as part of the nothingness. I was all but dead. But then, improbably, out of this crippling nothingness, a figure came through and I heard a familiar voice, as real as anything I'd ever known. Daddy, you've got to get out of the car. Wow. I mean, it just gives you chills. He talks about gratitude for his cameraman, Pierre, who was killed in that attack, and some of the American veterans and allies, former special forces who came, risked their own lives, he said, to get into the middle of the war zone and get him out of harm's way, and he has been recuperating ever since. Then he shared some thoughts with distance from the trauma as he has convalesced. Advice, really, that is universal in Cut 17. Yeah, I think it's really important when you're feeling low, and and there are many times that I was really at the bottom, when you have to know there's good on the other side, that if you work hard, that if you dedicate yourself to getting somewhere and you don't stop trying to achieve that, uh, you will get there. And no matter how painful something is, no matter how, how hard it is, if you really want to and you have the support to do it, you can get there. Never give up. Never assume it's all over. Um, and I was reached by thousands and thousands of our viewers, and they helped as well. 
when people reach out and tell them that they're thinking about you, that they're praying for you, that gives you support as well. So for anyone else who's going through really difficult things, keep going. Never give up. It's inside you, and there's always good on the other side. Keep going. Never give up. It's inside you, and there's always good on the other side. Stirring words from a man who knows what he's talking about, who has lived it, Benjamin Hall. Welcome back to the air, sir. The Guy Benson Show returns right after this. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast free every day. All right. Let's talk a little hardcore politics as we look ahead to 2024. Let's not talk about the House of Representatives. Let's not talk about the presidential race. Let's talk about the U.S. Senate. We know that Democrats have a 51-49 majority, having gained one seat, Nat in 2022, which was such a failure by Senate Republicans. I mean, it's really hard to overstate how pathetic that performance was. Blowing a number of winnable seats with a number of really flawed and ultimately unelectable candidates. Right? There were lessons that were learned. We talked about them right after the midterms. A lot of voters just don't trust Republicans at the federal level. That's why they underperformed in the House. It's how they somehow managed to lose ground in a friendly-ish map and a more than friendly environment, both historically and in terms of the political climate, the economy. The out party should have gained some ground, and they couldn't even maintain the 50-50 tie in the Senate. They actually lost a seat overall. And ultimately, it was because a lot of independent voters— who flocked to Republican governors and other Republican officials could not vote for certain Republicans on the ballot, including a few high-profile Senate nominees. And that's something that Republican voters need to think about when it comes to the nomination process, not just for House and Senate candidates, but, of course, for the presidency in 2024. Independent voters who swing elections are obviously not thrilled with the Democratic Party, not thrilled with President Biden and his agenda, willing to vote for certain Republicans, often in large numbers, but unwilling to pull the lever for other kinds of Republicans. Now, you might not like that. You might wish that things were different, but ultimately, you've got to win. And in order to win, you have to see what the electorate broadly is telling you. And adjust unless you don't want to win, unless you want to have your type of people nominated and tell you the things that you want to hear in an echo chamber and make you feel good and then lose. Then the Democrats have power to do the things that we complain about every day. Right. That's the decision that has to be made. Now, the good news from the Senate Republican perspective is that, believe it or not, in 2024, the Senate landscape, the Senate map is even worse, like significantly worse for Democrats than it was last year. This is one of the most difficult and brutal maps I've ever seen. So there are some of these professional prognosticators like the Cook Political Report and the Center for Politics where they come out and they rank and rate various races. 
with varying degrees of success. Now, we're a ways off from November 2024, obviously. That is multiple lifetimes in American politics. But as things stand in the very initial nascent stages of the 2024 elections, and we're starting to see some of the battle lines getting drawn already, the Republicans have a distinct advantage in the 2024 Senate map, because as we know, every two years, a third of the Senate comes up, right? Because there's six-year terms. So only one out of every three seats comes in cycle. And depending on what happened six years ago, that can affect how the map looks in the upcoming cycle. So the crystal ball over at the Center for Politics, they put out their first Senate ratings of the 2024 election. And let me just describe it for you, because I think this is a a pretty good encapsulation of how things look. And I will note that the Cook Political Report, they have similar ratings that appear quite familiar if you've seen the crystal ball ratings, right? It's, It's a lot of overlap. So the Center for Politics has three Senate toss-ups on the map, Arizona, Montana, and Ohio. They also have a Democrat-held seat that begins the cycle already in the leans Republican category, and that's West Virginia, Joe Manchin. Manchin had a good brand in his state, Mr. Independent, Mr. Moderate, and then he decided to give Joe Biden and the Democrats this gift This giveaway, the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, the climate change bill, all this new spending, doubling the IRS, that was Joe Manchin. And his numbers have just tanked in West Virginia ever since. Jim Justice, the governor, who used to be a Democrat, now he's a conservative Republican. That's the way the state has moved. Justice recently gave an interview suggesting that he's very interested in challenging Manchin for that Senate seat. That is one of the reddest states in the country now. And whatever reputation and record Manchin had been building, I think he threw a lot of it away with that Hail Mary present to Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer. And by the way, he got bamboozled, right? He got sandbagged by his party because there was this side agreement that they promised they were going to give him on permitting reform, which is going to be great for West Virginia and all this energy stuff. But he got duped because the Democrats ended up not following through on that promise, which was not in the legislation. It was just like a side agreement. Pinky swear, we're going to do it. And then he got rolled. And now Manchin's going to spend the next year or two trying to beg Republicans to bail him out and get them to help keep the promises that his party broke to him. We'll see how that goes. But this Center for Politics, the crystal ball, as they call it, they've got West Virginia already lean Republican. And based on some of the public polling that's out there, his approval rating, Manchin's, some of the hypothetical head-to-heads, he is down. Things can change, but Republicans have such a pickup opportunity in West Virginia. So that would be one. You have to net two in 2024 to get the majority back. So you've got Ohio. Sherrod Brown, he's the incumbent. Pretty progressive Democrat. He's built a reputation. He's built a brand in Ohio. He's won three consecutive elections. That's not an easy out in the Buckeye State. Now, Sherrod Brown, I think he's the last statewide Democrat to hold office in Ohio. The idea that it'll be just easy to wave a wand and and boot him out, I don't think that's right. But 
that state has gotten redder and redder with each passing cycle. And we saw even a guy like J.D. Vance, who went through a brutal, bruising primary, couldn't raise money, had all sorts of problems against a very well-funded, pretty well-known, moderate-pretending Democrat for that open seat that Rob Portman left. And with all of his flaws, J.D. Vance won by, what, six and a half points. Not really that close. Now, the governor, Mike DeWine, won by 26 points, right, to give you a sense of the gap there. But still, the close race was six and a half points. If the Republicans get a quality challenger, that could be a very real race and a very real pickup opportunity for the GOP. Similar in Montana. John Tester, you look at his record, he's been elected now three times in a row. He votes like Chuck Schumer. I call him Chuck Schumer with a flat top haircut, right? He looks the part in Montana. He looks and reads like a moderate, like a guy from back home. He drives around in the truck with the camera showing his gun. That's what he wants Montanans to see. His voting record is almost indistinguishable from Chuck Schumer's back in Washington. And in terms of his opponents and some of the cycles that he's been up in, he's gotten fairly fortunate. He's been fortunate in his political luck over these last, gosh, what is it now, 18 years? Could that luck finally run out? Well, it depends on who they nominate out in Montana. Right? He is going to be another tough nut to crack just because of what he's been able to do in that state, John Tester. But he deserves to lose. I think he absolutely could lose, especially facing someone who's tough, who's good who is going to appeal to the electorate in that state. So I agree with that being a potential toss-up race. Then you've got Arizona, which gets more and more interesting, because you remember that Kirsten Sinema, the incumbent, a Democrat, switched to independent. She knew that this guy, Ruben Gallego, was going to almost certainly challenge her from the left in a primary. The left hates her. Even though she's like... A pretty loyal progressive, especially on social issues, but a lot of other things, because she has not voted every single time for every single thing that they want, like the insane Build Back Better $5 trillion binge that she and Manchin stopped, they are so mad at her, they have been out for blood politically. And so I guess she's seen some of the numbers, and she feels like, all right, I might be a goner in a Democratic primary. I'm now an independent. So Gallego's now in the race. He's running as the progressive. He, by the way, chaired Eric Swalwell's presidential campaign, just to give you a sense of where he's coming from in his judgment. So you've got Gallego on the left, Cinema on the center left, and then the question is, what are Republicans going to do? If Republicans nominate, quote-unquote, a normal conservative, like, for example, the state treasurer who just won the most votes of anyone in 2022 in that state, won easily by, like, 10 points, Someone like that, someone like, oh, I don't know, former Governor Doug Ducey, who decided not to run for Senate in 2022. That seat was narrowly lost. A totally winnable seat, Mark Kelly hung on as a loyal Biden-Schumer Democrat because there was inexperience and problems on the Republican side at the top of the ticket, right? Republicans did really well in Arizona in a bunch of statewide races and congressional races. They won all the toss-up. Congressional races in Arizona, the top of the ticket had problems and lost. Doug Ducey was a very successful conservative governor for two terms. He was reelected in 2018 in a blue wave year by 14 points in Arizona. 
you put him in that Senate race against a center left that might be divided, that's a Republican pickup, period. If you put, like, Carrie Lake in there, and the rumors are that she might be interested or Blake Masters might be interested, again, Carrie Lake, I saw, was just endorsing one of the very fringe, wacko RNC candidates. That could be a path to the Democrats again winning a race in Arizona that otherwise they would have no business winning. And Republicans can keep nominating people that can't win statewide. That's how you've got two Democratic senators and now a Democratic governor. We'll see if the Arizona Republican electorate is tired of losing yet because there's a pretty clear path to victory in that state. We've seen it. So those are the toss-ups or even lean Republicans. West Virginia, Ohio, Montana, Arizona. If Republicans win two of those four at least on net, they win back the Senate. Now you look elsewhere, there are some potential toss-ups or like lightly blue states that in the right environment, especially if the Republicans have someone good at the top of the presidential ticket, right, because coattails will matter. Rather than having someone who is a burden and a yoke on the down-ticket Republicans, if you've got someone lifting all boats, that can help. So you look at states where Republicans have lost very narrowly or won narrowly various statewide races in recent years. Nevada's on the board. Wisconsin's on the board. Michigan's on the board. Pennsylvania's on the board. So it is a broad map filled with opportunity for Senate Republicans in 2024. Really tough for Democrats to play defense all these places. And we'll probably get more into the hardcore nitty-gritty about how those races are all shaping up as we move through the cycle. I just want to say on the other side of the aisle, you might say, okay, well, what about Republicans, though? They've got to defend some seats. Well, let me tell you where they're going to be defending seats. Ready for this? Utah, Wyoming, North Dakota, Nebraska, Missouri, Mississippi, Indiana, Tennessee, Florida, and Texas. That is a very red landscape. According to the prognosticators, the most winnable seats for Democrats, most winnable of this map in 2024 in the Senate, Texas and Florida, Ted Cruz and Rick Scott, respectively. Just this past year, Governor Abbott won by double digits in Texas. Governor DeSantis won by almost 20 points in Florida. Senator Rubio by 17 points. They're rating both of those seats as likely Republican and the rest as safe Republican. Republicans should not, knock on wood, lose a single Senate seat that they currently hold in 2024 with an array of pickup opportunities. Now the question is, do they blow it? You can't Right off that possibility, and the top of the ticket might matter a lot there. If you're trying to figure out a way, they might blow it. Might they eke out a little bit of a Senate majority by winning two of all these winnable seats, or do they have a big year, a big cycle, and gain a bunch of seats and have a clear majority in the U.S. Senate? That will depend on a lot of factors. It's way too early to tell, but boy, the map is very enticing. From a Republican perspective, and I would say quite daunting from a Democratic perspective. So that's how things are shaping up very early on. Just wanted to give you a lay of the land here in early 2023 as we look ahead.
The Guy Benson Show returns with more right after this break. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Yesterday, we did a woke tale segment about this absurdity, unfortunately not an unfamiliar one, in which a young woman was fired unceremoniously by her employer, a gaming company, Video Games, because she had said publicly how excited she was for a new Harry Potter video game, which the deranged trans activist community has decided is an unacceptable sin. Because if you are endorsing or celebrating anything that has to do with Harry Potter, by definition, you are loving J.K. Rowling and her views on feminism, womanhood, and trans issues. And, I mean, they treat her like an absolute horrible, hateful villain. And therefore, if you are on board with that, then you're the enemy and you have to go. So this young woman, Kara Lynn, had said something out in the open about her excitement over the game, and some trans activists zeroed in on her, targeted her, went back in her social media footprint, was going through all the people that she follows on social media, and gasp, some of them are right-wingers, including libs of TikTok and others. How could she? So they agitated and agitated and agitated until her limited-run games, at limited-run games on Twitter, just fired her. Now, I mean, I hope she sues them. I hope she's able to take a huge chunk out of their pocket. I hope she has a case. I hope they have financial pain for this. It's outrageous. This stuff drives me crazy. And I was saying on the show yesterday, I wish there was a way that people who hate this cancel culture can fight back. And then I remembered we did an interview on this show with the New Tolerance campaign at newtolerance.org, newtolerance.org. And they make it very easy. When there's one of these flare-ups, you can go to their website, newtolerance.org, and they direct you easily to the top executives of the companies making these types of decisions. Because clearly they can be bullied. Clearly they respond to pressure. They only care about the pressure on the left. Often they only get the pressure from the left. This is a chance to fight back. I asked them, hey, did you guys see this circumstance? Are you doing anything? They said, yep. They had just started a campaign Yesterday, already hundreds of emails flooding in to limited run games. And you can be one of them. If you would like these people to hear from you, if you are unhappy about this like I am, go to newtolerance.org and they've got a campaign for limited run games. And look at their other campaigns while you're there. This is a way to fight back, and I don't know how else to do it. Newtolerance.org. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show. Coming right up, Miranda Devine is here next. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Glad to have you all on board every weekday. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. That's our online home. Lots of content there. GuyBensonShow.com. One of those items is the free podcast. Every day on demand, totally free. No charge to you. 
GuyBensonShow.com or FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. You can also follow me personally on those same platforms at Guy P. Benson. Happy Hour sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Terrific, delicious, very enjoyable, and expanding by popular demand. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can find out where it's sold near you. A lot more places now than even a year ago. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only, please. Joining me now is Miranda Devine, New York Post columnist, Fox News contributor, and author of the book, Laptop from Hell. Miranda, it's good to have you back on the show. Great to be with you, Guy. So I thought of you, I think probably quite a few people did, the moment that I saw that image of Hunter Biden in the Corvette with some ladies with their faces blurred out in relation to the whole classified document scandal that continues to unfold before our eyes. We heard our colleague Peter Ducey ask the question of the president about the Corvette and the classified documents that were apparently found in that same garage. And Biden took the bait. And now here we have images of his son, who has had various issues, obviously, in his past, in that very car, presumably taken from that very garage. I was like, all right, well, I bet you Miranda has some thoughts on this. So what do you make of it? Well, look, it's pretty clear that uh, Joe Biden had classified material stashed in his garage, in his house, five different places in his office at the University of Pennsylvania. God knows how many other stashes there are. And it's also clear that Hunter Biden was selling uh, information overseas. That was his value, was his proximity to his father, uh, any potential favours that could be done by his father, and also any classified or otherwise unknown information that he might get. That would be his currency, because he had nothing else to offer for these tens of millions of dollars that were flowing in from China and Russia and Ukraine and so on. So immediately you think, well, Joe Biden's sloppy with classified information. He's uh, involved in his uh, son and his um, a brother, Jim Biden's influence peddling operation. He's at least aware of it and uh, allows himself to be wheeled out to meet these uh, these generous benefactors from you know Ukraine and Russia and Kazakhstan and elsewhere, China particularly. Uh, you know he flew Hunter into China, into Beijing and met with one of his business partners on Air Force Two. So we know that that's going on. So. Um, then you see there's a, um, an email that really jumps out from the laptop, and it's written by Hunter to his business partner, Devin Archer, in 2014. Uh, it's um, a month before Hunter goes on to the board of that Ukrainian energy company, Burisma. Um, he's wanting to prove his worth, uh, that he's worth the $83,000 a month that they've said that they will pay him. And uh, so he writes this email, which is very uncharacteristic for him. For one thing, his emails are normally like a line, and this is 1,300 words. Um, And it's very informative, very well-informed, very strategic, uh, full of um, geopolitical information about Ukraine, about Russia, about the European Union, about the United Kingdom, about... Uh, energy politics in the region, uh, and about, um, he confidently predicts that 
the United Na United States would um, strengthen their sanctions. And uh, he also predicts the winner correctly of the Ukrainian upcoming election. And this is a week before his father is flying into Ukraine as vice president to give them millions of US taxpayer dollars for their energy industry. Uh, and also, ironically enough, to um, lecture them about corruption. So that email jumped out because, to me, it looked like uh, certainly had the flavour of an official document, a cut and paste, um, or at the very least uh, an official document, an official briefing, or even a classified document. And I know that Ron Johnson, the senator, has said, uh, you know, after I published that story today, he said it looks very suspicious and it looks very like the um, sort of briefings that they get, the scene setters that the uh, State Department offers them before they go, senators go overseas. Mm. And, you know, the senators have all told us about how uh, they have to go into these super secure, um, classified sort of locked rooms take to look steps. at any classified information. Yeah. Um, and uh, they're not even allowed to take out notes. And remember that there are documents that have been found that Joe Biden's uh, own lawyers have uh, found and talked about um, that date from his Senate days when he had no right to uh, take any classified documents anywhere. You mentioned some of the influence peddling abroad. Uh, being very lucrative for the Biden family, for Hunter, for Joe Biden's brother. I know that the big guy has said that he had no knowledge really of any of it and didn't follow any of that. There's a, quite a bit of evidence that that's not true, including eyewitness testimony from other business partners saying Joe Biden was intimately involved in some ways, very much up to date, had some face-to-face -face meetings with some of these people. So, I mean, the, the categorical denial that Joe Biden gave on the campaign trail is, I think, quite, quite unlikely to be true. I'm extremely dubious of that based on the evidence. One thing that is interesting, Miranda, and I don't know if you noticed this, but a few days ago, CNN was actually covering this story, was talking about the trading on the Biden name and how much money that was making members of the Biden family, uh, particularly vis-a-vis -vis people overseas in some of these countries that you just mentioned, and involving some of those particular family members that you have just name-checked, CNN doing like a pretty significant report on it. Now, they are way behind the curve. People watching Fox and reading you have known a lot of this stuff for a very long time, a lot of it predating the 2020 election. But I still find it intriguing that CNN is now at least deciding that it's newsworthy enough to cover it. I wonder what your thoughts are there. I think it's... CNN, like the New York Times uh, back last year, um, have just decided that they have to get out ahead of this story, that they can't ignore it anymore. It's too big. Um, it encompasses too much that um, the Republicans, now that they control the House, um, are pretty resolute in um, their pursuit of the Biden family corruption story. And as James Comer, um, head of the Oversight Committee, keep saying it's not about Hunter Biden, it's about Joe Biden. So no longer can they use this excuse that, oh, this is just a story about, you know, poor Hunter who was drug addicted, but he's turned his life around. And, you know, why are you victimising him? He's not, uh, you know, in elected office. 
Um, but no, it's not about Hunter Biden. It's about Joe Biden. And I think um, these uh, organisations, media organisations, have run cover for Joe Biden for a long time. And I think they've just decided they're not going to do that anymore because um, the stakes are too high. I, I think even CNN viewers and New York Times and Washington Post readers, um, now the truth about this story is starting to seep across. And they don't want their readers and their viewers to suddenly realise that they are just propaganda machines and that they've been kept in the dark. Um, and particularly if indictments come out um, against Hunter Biden from that Delaware US attorney investigation, the grand jury keeps on being reconvened there. Um, and particularly now that a special counsel has been appointed by the Attorney General, Merrick Garland, to investigate um, you know, alleged improper handling by Joe Biden of classified materials. Um, again, that that uh, links into the whole influence peddling story because what makes the classified documents so particularly um, toxic and pungent when it comes to uh, Joe Biden is because of his son and his brother Jim Biden's, uh, you know, nefarious activities overseas in those very countries that we're told um, are covered in some of these classified documents, being Ukraine and Iran. Uh, Iran's not mentioned anything I've seen much, a little bit, um, uh, but also the United Kingdom, which is in that email that I highlighted this week. Uh, it was Ukraine and the United Kingdom were both mentioned. Yeah, and, so, and then meanwhile, Chuck Todd over at NBC in an interview recently, really just a, a grilling, a hostile grilling of Ron Johnson, the Wisconsin senator. He just seemed mystified that anyone might suggest that there could be criminal activity or criminal charges coming against Hunter Biden. I guess just having completely missed or forgotten about the grand jury investigation, the federal investigation into Hunter Biden and his business practices dating back years at this point. Quickly, Miranda, just a few minutes left. There's another wrinkle to all of this involving an email, lacrosse, and someone named Charles McGonagall. What's the significance there? Just connect some of those dots. Well, Charles McGonagall, of course, is the former FBI guy who's just been indicted on, um, you know, charges of taking bribes from a Russian oligarch. Um, and he very sinisterly was the head of um, counterintelligence operations for the FBI. He also was uh, a guy who was instrumental in a lot of the Russia collusion hoax investigations, the Mueller investigation um, into Donald Trump. Um, he has a connection to um, Hunter Biden, a personal connection. I'm not sure if it uh, means anything, but he does appear on the laptop um, because their daughters went to the same school. Interesting. And I guess there was some sort of like lacrosse connection where the kids were going to practice or a game together. And you're like, okay, well, that's at least something of a connection. And I think the charges against the ex-FBI agent McGonagall unto themselves are an interesting story. The fact that there's even some sort of, you know, glancing connection at the least to Hunter Biden through, I guess, kids in school, that's certainly interesting and obviously something that you're looking into. Yes, and, and the other part of this, of course, is that the FBI uh, and in the Washington field office in particular ran cover for Joe Biden by um, it coercing the social media companies to censor our story by pre-bunking it, by telling Twitter that uh, to expect in October 
a, a dump of Russian disinformation, likely about Hunter Biden, so that they were they were pre-armed. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, there was a bunch of people colluding to make sure that the New York Post was punished for doing that accurate reporting, uh, to make sure that a lot of people didn't see those stories leading up to the election. It was censored. There were a lot of people involved in it. Among them, Adam Schiff of the House Intelligence Committee, who said it was Russian disinformation, one of the lies that was told, one of quite a few lies that he particularly has told, which is why the Republicans are moving to remove him from the Intelligence Committee. He's already playing the victim there as he announces his Senate run. I think he'll try to parlay that into even more power in the upper chamber. So that's something, obviously, uh, where all this sort of ties together. We're watching it closely on this particular realm in this slice of the world no one is covering it more closely than Miranda Devine. You can read her at the New York Post, see her on Fox News. Miranda, always appreciate it. Thanks, Guy. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. And all right, I'm just going to talk about it briefly. I know most of you probably don't care. And I'm nervous to even broach the subject. You know that I'm a hardcore Northwestern sports fan. Went to college at Northwestern University in Chicago. And it was a very rough football season for us. As it was last year. 3-9 and nine last year. 1-11 and 11 this year. And the basketball team, I'm also big into Northwestern basketball, was expected to be not good. I picked to finish near the bottom of the Big Ten Conference. And yet, thus far... As we approach February, the Northwestern Wildcats men's basketball team are like surpassing all expectations, especially mine. 14 and 5 overall, 5 and 3, above 500 by two games in conference play in a very tough Big Ten conference. I know some people are already putting them like in the mix for the NCAA tournament. And even if you don't follow college basketball, you're aware, at least tangentially, of March Madness. Northwestern has only qualified as one of the teams in the field for March Madness and the tournament once ever in the history of the program, ever. 2016-2017, like the miraculous special year. Every other season, NIT or far worse. And Yet they are seriously in the conversation at this point in the season for the tournament. And I've just been sort of putting my fingers in my ears, saying like, la, 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 like I don't want to hear it. I'm not going to acknowledge it. I'm enjoying the ride. It's been stressful. Big win at home over Wisconsin the other day. Then they just blew out Nebraska on the road last night. Minnesota rolling in for a home game in Evanston. This coming weekend, I just saw that the student section is already completely sold out. Student section has been awesome this year, like beyond what I've seen. I hope they keep that going because the energy is great. It's a loud, small little building. It's fun. It's a great place to watch a game. Welsh Ryan Arena. So the reason I bring this up is, number one, I bleed purple. I, like, love celebrating the success of the Wildcats and talking about it. Part of the fight song is spread far the fame of our fair name. So that's what I'm doing here on the platform that I've got. That being said, I'm also using this segment as a confession, which is I feel like Northwestern, like we just we can't have nice things in Northwestern football and basketball. You're just always waiting, borderline cringing for the next 
negative shoe to drop and the whole thing just comes unglued, which could very much still happen, right? I am fully emotionally prepared for a collapse. You have to be as a Northwestern fan. It's a coping mechanism. It's a survival method, okay? But I'm going to confess, after beating Nebraska last night, decisively on the road with an exhausted team having played a bunch of games, or I guess now back-to-back games on three nights coming off of a little COVID break because the team had COVID. Shorthanded, couple guys still out. Once they moved to 5-3 and three and did what they did, I started looking ahead at the schedule and starting to do the math of what they would maybe need to do to make the tournament and been reading like Lenardi and some of these other guys. And I will tell you, I started Googling dates and host cities for the early rounds of the tournament. I did it. I did. I'm sorry. I know I've probably now guaranteed a jinx. I just want to put it out there. So if and when the tailspin is confirmed, you can blame at least partially yours truly. But I couldn't help it. Mid-March, what I'm going to be up to, various weekends, where might I have to fly if I'm able to do it at all? This is what's happening in my brain. It is still January. What are you doing? It's actually I stupid. I know better. I should not have done this. Stay tuned. We'll see what happens in the coming games. Go Cats. Beat the Gophers. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Earlier today on the Guy Benson Show, we welcome back the governor of New Hampshire, Chris Sununu, a Republican, was here, talked about a lot of different topics with the governor. Here's a taste of it. Listen. So I saw this story, a big uh, contretemps in New Hampshire over the primary calendar, and especially on the Democratic side, they had a big mess in 2020, I guess, yeah, 2019 into 2020 in Iowa. Now it looks like President Biden wants to bypass Iowa and New Hampshire and start their nominating process in South Carolina. Democrats in your state are very upset about this. They're waging this big public battle against this possibility. Meanwhile, the DNC, angry at, North, at New Hampshire Democrats, saying that their opposition and their criticisms have been shocking, disturbing, and irresponsible. I just wonder what you make of all of this from the other side of the aisle, and are there any changes coming on the Republican side? Uh, no, no changes on our side. I mean, the Democrat Party's a mess right now. And, you know, they talked about doing this back in August, and then they realized it might not be a great idea, so they delayed it till November. They delayed the decision to December, January. Now they're going to delay it into June because they know what a negative domino effect it's creating. And just the idea that you're going to have effectively a candidate, right, Joe Biden, who says he's going to run again, uh, pick which state should come first. And, of course, he's picking his buddies. It's just political, personal political payback to uh, those that anointed him, because that's kind of how South Carolina does it, anointed him uh, onto the ballot in, uh, and, and launched him in, back in 2020. So it's just it's, – it's for all the wrong reasons. I mean I think South Carolina has like 16 percent voter turnout. Like people don't even really participate, uh, whereas in New Hampshire we are constantly setting records for voter turnout. So it just – it really makes no sense. We have the first in the nation primary guy because we've earned it, right? We, we, you don't need money. You don't need name ID. You don't need any of that <clears throat> to have a real shot. Uh, and everything really comes down to the wire, and you got to go door to door and person to person as it should be and, and earn it. And uh, so, you know, I think they realize what a mess that they're in. Um, we're not changing anything on our side. 
Um, we're pushing back really hard. And, and by the way, we're coming first whether they like it or not. Our law says so. So we're going to hold ours first. They, oh, we, they might take our delegates or something silly like that. Who cares? Uh, the fact of the matter is all the media, all the attention, all the candidates are going to be here. And believe you me, somebody will be challenging Joe Biden, and they will be running in New Hampshire. And when they win, they're going to come out with a whole head of steam, a lot of momentum, uh, and Joe Biden will be sitting on his heels. So I think they just realize what a mess this is. That's why they keep delaying the final decision. And hopefully they come to the right conclusion, get their heads about them, and, and make sure New Hampshire's first on their schedule as well. Well, I think part of what they argue is in Iowa and in New Hampshire, they say it's just those places are too white. And they say that's not representative of America. It's certainly not representative of their base. So these places are too white. Of course, Iowa was where Barack Obama took off, the first black president, and sort of like put that off to the side. But that's one of the big arguments, like a racial argument. Yeah, yeah. So they they say there's not much diversity in the vote, yet you're going to go to South Carolina where virtually nobody votes. Like virtually, I think 16 percent voter turnout. Last time. So what's the point of having all this diversity they claim to have if they don't let let people participate in the process and they just have the upper echelon of liberal left wing elites dictate who's who's going to to get the nomination? Here's one for you guys. In 2020, do you know what the do you know what happened to the Republican nomination in South Carolina? They didn't even hold. They didn't even even hold a um, an election. They just kind of nominated Donald Trump as the incumbent. That's what they do. So there's actually a good chance. They're going to take – they want to take the First Nation primary from New Hampshire and bring it to a state that won't even hold a primary. My full interview with Chris Sununu, the 82nd governor of New Hampshire, available online, GuyBensonShow.com, also part of the free podcast, the whole show every day on demand, start to finish, for free. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, it's the home stretch. We're going to talk about supermarket pasta sauces. I guess the Washington Post did a taste test. Our team here has very strong feelings. We'll get to all of that next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Thursday, Friday Eve on the Guy Benson Show. I'll be doing the program from Washington State. Oh, there's a twist tomorrow. Looking forward to that. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is always free on demand. So we talk a lot about food around these parts, and we're going to do so again today. Quiet Wyatt had seen a piece in the Washington Post. Apparently he was cheating on the Wall Street Journal just for a moment. Couldn't resist the Washington Post write-up of a taste test that they did, sampling 12 different supermarket-available marinara sauces for some delicious pasta. And they determined, at least, that there was a clear winner. Now, let me just first say this, my approach to pasta. Number one, I love it. Number two, I don't eat it a lot because it's, like, so carb-heavy, and I try to avoid that. But sometimes the body wants what it wants, okay? So I will allow pasta from time to time. We do zoodles, so I get sort of the deliciousness of the pasta sauce and maybe some Parmesan cheese. I will admit that one of my peculiar tastes is I like out-of-the-jar like turkey and beef gravy, turkey gravy, for example, for Thanksgiving, 
Similarly, I like Kraft powdered Parmesan cheese more than like the grated stuff. I don't dislike the grated stuff. I just like the powder. I know it's one of my tackier tastes. I just embrace it. Whereas also on Thanksgiving, I don't love the Ocean Spray sliceable cranberry product, whatever you want to call that. They call it sauce. We do a homemade sauce. That's my preference. But I like the powdered Parmesan cheese over the red sauce. And I'll tell you about our sauce in a second. Then we'll do zoodles. So vegetable noodles, but ideally just pasta. A linguine, a rigatoni, mm, a penne. Oh. Some of those bigger pastas like rigatoni are especially good with a vodka-type sauce, sort of the orange vodka sauce. And then what we will do is typically buy a store-bought jar of marinara sauce or something similar, a red sauce. And then we will brown and cook ground meat, usually ground bison. Okay, hear me out, because it's a red meat, it's delicious. To me, you can't really taste the difference, especially in a sauce versus beef, but it's much better for you. So we do bison meat. Then we'll do some nice sort of sautéed onions, sautéed carrots, occasionally a mushroom, maybe some peppers. Sometimes some spicy pepper flakes in there as well. Get all of that going into a simmer, and then in goes the store-bought sauce. Then you mix that in, ideally, with the pasta, right? So you're not pouring the sauce on top of the pasta. It's all mixed in together, and then the Parmesan cheese goes on top. A little side salad, a little red wine on a cold night. Oh, I mean, it is hard to beat. Why am I doing this to myself? Now I'm so hungry. Now I'm craving pasta. But not all supermarket marinara sauces are created equal, apparently. So you've got lots of different options. You've got generic store brands. You've got the ragus of the world. Classico, I believe, is another one that my family used a lot when I was growing up. It seems like the king of the hill is Rayos, am I saying that right? R-A-O-S. I feel like I've had some of their sauce before. And people are going crazy for it. I might need to, like, really focus on this brand. And if it is as delicious as they say, just adopt the brand. Then you've got traditionalists who are saying, nope, none of this is good enough. You've got to make your own from scratch. Your homemade Italian red sauce. Or if you're in a little tiny part of the country, you call it gravy. Everyone else in the country calls gravy something else. But if you're an Italian living basically in New Jersey, you call it gravy. It's marinara sauce. It's red sauce. When you add beef, it becomes something like of a bolognese or a meat sauce. Okay, so Wyatt, what about this Washington Post piece allured you to the point that you read it and then shared it? Are you... I know you're something of a cook. Do you do a lot of pasta? Yes, lots and lots of pasta. I absolutely – I eat pasta probably twice a week. So um, I was interested in this article. But my favorite sauce is not on here. I do normally make my own sauce. That is something I normally do do. But um, my favorite sauce from Costco is the Victoria sauce. It's like this organic, 
like I think there's only like three or four ingredients of just, you know, tomato, water, olive oil, whatever. And to me, it's so light. They have different flavors, but that's my favorite sauce. But I always grew up eating the ragu stuff. Yep. Ragu is a big just, one. Mm-mm-mm. That just doesn't do it. It's not my personal favorite. We might have ragu fans in the audience. It's not my personal favorite. Now, when you are doing pasta multiple times a week, is it just the Victoria sauce poured on top some boiled pasta in that sit, or do you sort of spice it up and zhuzh it up with other stuff? Oh, I, I normally make my own homemade with tomatoes, and I always put ricotta cheese on there mm. and some Parmesan cheese. Mm-hmm. I I like to, you know, dress it up. Or I do actually make a really good vodka sauce, homemade. Ooh, really? A little bit of vodka and the tomatoes and the tomato paste and the garlic and, yeah. So, Onion, some onions in a vodka yes. sauce is delicious. Do you do, like, meat as well, protein? Yeah, I've done a really good sausage one where you take, Ooh. you know, like sausage and you cut it up and then you crumble it and you 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 uh, pan fry that first. Then you add it into the red sauce, like a nice meat sauce. Right, so I might just need to a... just like you don't live far from me, Wyatt. I might need to like <laughs> get you over here to cook. I don't know. I can provide a big, beautiful kitchen for you and some good wine because this sounds amazing. All right, Dan, I know. You agree with the conclusion written and reached by the Washington Post, correct? I do, yes. Yeah, I love Why? I love Rayos. It's the best. I was turned on to it by my girlfriend a couple of years ago. I'd never heard of it before, but it is a restaurant in New York City, and they make the sauce, and it's just absolutely delicious. But like most people, I grew up with like ragu and prego and all those oh, other prego. ones. Yeah, that's yeah prego one. is yep. another one. Um, I do. I have tried Victoria. The vodka sauce or vodka sauce is something. Wait, hang say. on. Now I'm suddenly remembering a Prego commercial from my childhood <laughs> where they had a song. It was like, oh, mama, Prego, Prego is the best. Oh, mama, Prego, Prego won the test. Like late 90s. There you go. So you're welcome for that, everyone. Uh, please continue. Um, but I do like a spicier sauce. So they have an Arabiata sauce that mm-hmm. is a rails that's really, really good. And if they don't have spicy sauce, I'll add, like, red pepper flakes. I do like adding meat to it like you do. I have done ground bison. I've done ground beef and ground turkey in it, mm-hmm. um, yep. which is fantastic. All good options. Totally. Um, yeah. And but- sometimes, sometimes I do like the spice to it. Sometimes I like a sweeter red sauce as well, especially kind of depending on what else you're going to have in the dish overall. And the oh, wine and if pairing. I can see, that's the thing. A wine pairing. The other thing that I'm now thinking about torturing myself is on top of the pasta and all of this stuff that we've already mentioned what about like a beautiful italian bread baguette slightly warm oh my goodness with the olive oil and the fresh ground pepper or even just butter i mean now you're just talking about like a carb (laughs) bomb and i can't really do that too often based on like my guidelines here but man it's hard to beat that combination I am definitely going to have some pasta tonight when I get home with a glass of red wine. Uh, I'm going to be flying, so I have airplane food coming my way, so everyone can just sort of you know, pray for me. In any case, we have to get, last but not least, to producer Christine, who is allegedly, as part of her Soviet legend, an Italian-American. I'm putting all of this in scare quotes. And Christine, based on your taste and basically everything, I already know what your answer is going to be here which is your go-to pasta red sauce, obviously, is Heinz ketchup. 
So you can just confirm that we can move on. Yes. Are you talking about Sketty? I'm talking about I'm talking about Sketty. Yes. <laughs> You're very funny here because I cannot believe you came to me last. I am the Italian American from North Jersey. Like, if there's one thing I know is good sauce and good Italian food. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bobby, by the way, makes a delicious homemade vodka sauce. Uh, we had it actually last night with ground uh, sausage and uh, rigatoni, and it oh, was to die for. But so good. But is is he Italian? No, he's like almost 100% Irish. Yeah, see, I would trust him with the Italian cooking over whatever they taught you in Siberia during your training. <laughs> Guy, I'm Italian. Like, literally, my godparents, Marion and, Mary and Tony, taught me how to make the sauce. Like, and it is called gravy, but it's Sunday gravy. So, like, you can have your marana. But you can also have your Sunday gravy, and that's with your meats, and that takes, like, you know, hours to make. Whoa, whoa, hang hang on real quick. Can we get a Fox News alert here? Quiet Wyatt has just texted the group a series of photographs of pastas that he has prepared, and I'm scrolling through them. And whatever Christine is talking about, I've just lost all interest because I can't stop staring. This vodka sauce, this looks like... Rigatoni alla vodka with big chunks of stewed tomato, some fresh ricotta with some fresh ground pepper and olive oil sprinkled on top. Oh, and then it looks like maybe a a fettuccine or a linguine in the next one. Looks a little spicier. Some fresh basil. Oh, my gosh. There's a little piece of bread just teasing me in one of them. All right, Wyatt. I mean, you've asked for it. This, to me, this is an invitation for yourself to come cook at my house. That's what I'm just interpreting this as. Um, so if that was not your intention, you've badly miscalculated because this looks absolutely delicious. All right. Sorry, Christine. I was I just was so distracted. I, I had missed everything that you were talking about. Something about no, I mean, uh, something okay. about ketchup. Nope, nope, nope. You just go talk to your favorite. It's OK. I'm just sitting here. The real Italian of the group. That's all right. I'll wait. Okay. Well, yeah. Uh, no, I, I. So that's it. So she's conceded, <laughs> and I think we have our answer. It's in in the ranking of authenticity. It's Wyatt, Dan, myself, and then Christine and Erschetti, which is fine, unless Bobby's cooking the Irishman. I don't have anything else to say. You know, I can make homemade pasta, right? I made homemade ravioli. I have ravioli cutters. Just call me Mama Celeste. Do you twirl Mama like that? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, I'd love to hear some of your uh, cooking terminology as you prepare your homemade pasta. That would be another situation where I would have – I would urge backup store-bought pastas just to have on hand just in case the crumb cake situation happens again. But that probably wouldn't happen, and therefore you'd have to go to your most authentic local pizza place that you love more than anything – Domino's with some pineapple on top of it. See, this is it all comes full circle, Christine. That you, we just know too much about you. That's your problem. So we'll have to continue this conversation another day. My mouth is watering. I need to get off the air. I need some pasta. Wyatt, pack your knives and bring them over here at some point. We've got to do this. Dan, you're invited. We'll see if anyone else is invited. 
I'll just, I'll, you know what, I'll debate that. I'll contemplate overnight. Doing the show from Washington State, Pacific Northwest tomorrow, out in KTTH land. Looking forward to that. We'll talk to you then on The Guy Benson Show. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on Outkick.com forward slash watch. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.